Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hello, I'm Ann Jocelyn Williams, author of Down from Casca Mountain. There are three alternating points of view in the novel. Mary, who has returned to Mount Cascom in New Hampshire with her new husband in hopes of restoring her family's home. Tobin, a troubled 15-year-old who lives with his father nearby. And Callie, a 16-year-old who works on crew for the Appalachian Mountain Club at Cascom Lodge. I'm going to read a chapter from Callie's point of view. This takes place the evening after a tragic accident on the mountain where Mary's husband fell to his death in a freak accident. They were sad about the man, and especially sad for the woman, Mary Walker. But after the ambulance and everyone was gone, they joked and cleaned up the dishes and set the table for tomorrow's breakfast and decided it was a good night for a swim. They hiked down the hill to the pond. Callie couldn't wait to dive into the water. She wanted to get under and swim as far as she could without breathing. As crew, they worked hard, mowing the fields next to the lodge, shoveling lime into the outhouses, digging drainage ditches, and cleaning rooms in the lodge. They served breakfast and dinner and cleared trails on Mount Cascom. Sometimes they led hikes, doled out moleskin for blisters. The man, Michael Walker, was their first dead person. Tonight, Louis the cook had stood at the kitchen door, pulled on his goateed chin, and stammered out a few words about staying open with feelings and that he and his wife Barb were available if anyone wanted to talk. They were sad, but they didn't want to talk about it. Callie dove in and swam out to the middle of the pond, Marley, Rabbit, and some teenage boys staying at the lodge for the weekend splashed to the float and began a game of King of the Raft. Callie kept treading water from a distance. The game could be rough. Marley enjoyed the fight, but Callie didn't like being touched by so many hands. Marley was 18, two years older than Callie. She had fiery orange-yellow hair, and her eyes were the bluest of any Callie had ever seen. When Callie first met her, she found it difficult to look at Marley without blinking. In the darkness she could see the silhouettes of bodies as they stood or flew from the raft. They weren't supposed to disturb the guests up at the lodge, and sound carried across the water. Still, there was a lot of splashing and an occasional squeal. Callie floated on her back. She liked the weightlessness and the rumbling underwater sound in her ears. It made her feel removed from the world, in a dream, womb-like, where her thoughts felt close and safe inside her head. The air was full of sweet smells, honeysuckle, and cut grass. For a second, she let herself think about Mary Walker, but it was hard to imagine what the woman could be feeling. She thought of Mary Walker's husband, who was alive only nine, maybe ten hours ago, and how strange it was to think of that short gap of time between being alive and then not, and how that gap was growing wider every minute. She'd seen him alive. She'd noticed the couple as they passed through the parking lot on their way up the mountain. She remembered how they leaned against each other, the woman's shoulder to his arm because she was shorter, how the woman had hold of his arm, smiling, talking to him, and how he listened, then stopped her, wet his thumb on his tongue, and smudged something off her cheek. That seemed like it was ages ago. Tonight the woman was completely changed from then. Her face was drained, gray. Any brightness in her eyes had flattened and dimmed. She moved with hesitation, staggered, like someone nearly unconscious trying to shake it off. Callie had helped carry the body down. It was strange, a dead man's body, useless. 
She'd felt woozy at times, trying to keep her stomach calm by thinking of other things. But the man was dead. There was blood in his hair. At one point they'd stopped to rest, setting the litter down, stretching their arms. The boys, Rabbit and Spencer, continued their patter about silly, unimportant things, a way to keep them from the truth of what they were really carrying, until Ben, the fire watchman, had caught up with them and everyone got quiet because he was solemn and seemed distant. Now she kicked her feet up and let herself hang in the water until her legs drifted deeper and only her face was above the surface. When she scissored her legs again and swept her arms out, her hand brushed against something. She struggled to right herself, swallowing a mouthful of water. "'It's just me,' came the voice of the crew boss, Spencer. "'You scared me,' she said, spinning herself around. "'Don't do that, God.' "'Sorry,' he said. He slid in front of her and dipped his chin and mouth under the water, his face hazy in the dark. She was in a cold pocket, but surges of warmer water came against her legs as he pedaled, making currents below. "'I didn't know you'd come in,' she said. It was unusual for Spencer to join them. He really wasn't that much older, he just seemed older, because he was the crew boss and because his wispy blonde hair was thinning on top. Spencer was the first crew member she'd met on the day she arrived at the lodge. He'd shown her to Low House, where she would live. There was something about him, about his masculinity, that made her feel shy, awkward. He had a friendly smile and was good-looking, though his eyes were a little close together, making his nose seem even longer. But there was a confidence about him. The way he carried off his big nose made him more attractive in a way. When he told her he was going to Harvard, she could tell he was impressed with himself. Spencer lived in the main lodge. The crew boss always had a private room in the main lodge. She didn't know much else about him. She'd never really talked to him about anything except what work had to be done around the lodge. She knew that he had a girlfriend in Cambridge. He was always getting calls from her, and sometimes the cooks teased him, calling her the fiancé, even though he wasn't engaged. "'Gorgeous night,' he said now. "'I mean the moon.' They both looked up at the bright moon. "'It's been kind of rough otherwise,' he said. From the raft, Marley squealed, and the others hushed her. "'How are you taking it?' "'I'm okay,' she said. "'Just sad for that lady is all.' Spencer rolled over and floated on his back. Callie's arms were growing tired from treading water, so she decided to swim in. When she snapped her legs and fanned her arms out in a breaststroke, her fingertips accidentally touched and brushed down the length of Spencer's side. Oh, he said in a pained way. When she came to shallow water, he was right there, reaching for her arm as she got to her feet, and then pulled her into him. His skin was warm. It felt almost hot in contrast to the cool air, but her knees began to shake. She was afraid the others would look across the water and see them. You're cold, he said. His lips moved above her ear. Then he let her go, reached for a towel, and swung it around her shoulders, drawing her against his body once more. I've wanted to do this for a long time, he said. I'm freezing, she said. He ran his hands over the towel, up and down her arms, trying to warm her up. I just can't stop thinking about you, he said. You can't, she said. Her teeth chattered. He hugged her closer. She felt his penis pushing against her. No, he said. I can't. They heard the others splashing, swimming in. Spencer let her go. She slipped out of his towel and moved quickly across the sand to where her own towel was. Tobin was sitting there on a log. He was scraping the sand between his feet with a stick. Hey, Tobin, she said, reaching for her towel, wondering if he'd witnessed her with Spencer. She tried to sound nonchalant, but her voice was breathy. "'How come you don't swim with us?' she asked. "'If you want,' she added, not meaning it to sound like it was any kind of criticism. "'He was sort of an odd duck. 
He didn't work at the lodge, just came with his father in a truck to get scraps for their pigs, and sometimes hung around, watching everyone like he wanted to be friends, but couldn't figure out how to join in. He was nice enough, just awkward. His dark, thick hair was always half in his face. That man, Tobin said, he was dead? He was, she answered, remembering that Tobin had been there, watching from the roof of Low House. It's so sad. Marley was by her side in the next moment, hopping around in the dark, drying herself off, searching for her flip-flops. Colder than hell, Marley said. I'll bet the ghost girl is out tonight. Callie shivered. The ghost girl was a creepy story, and true, everyone said. Tobin got up and moved toward the path, back to the main road. Are you walking home? Callie asked. Don't you want a flashlight or something? No, thanks, he said. I can see in the dark all right. What, are you a bat? Marley said. Bats are blind, Callie said. They have radar. It's called echolocation, Tobin said, and perhaps embarrassed added. Actually, I mean, it's like sonar. Just a joke, Marley said. No need for a lecture, Mr. Brain. Then, perhaps realizing her tone, and because she wasn't an unkind person, and a lot of awful things had happened that day, she added, get home safe. As Marley and Callie got ready for bed, Marley was quiet where usually she'd be analyzing everything, going over the day, discussing every detail about the dead man and Mary Walker. Callie couldn't stop thinking about being on the beach with Spencer. She had flutters. Her skin felt tight and clean. She combed her hair out, flipping it up and down, trying to dry it. Marley sat on Callie's bunk, staring at her. Spencer's got it bad for you, she said. I've seen it coming for a long time. You think? Callie wondered if Marley had seen them on the beach. Do you like him? Marley asked. Callie thought she did suddenly. Yes. That night, Callie waited for everyone to fall asleep, although she thought she saw Marley raise her head as she went out of the room. Callie was surprised at herself, taking the initiative, but it seemed she couldn't stop herself even if she tried. Also, she had this other feeling, an urgency, that it was now or never. She crossed the field barefoot in her long T-shirt, feeling the damp grass between her toes. Spencer's windows at the back of the lodge were dark. She wondered if he was asleep. It didn't matter. She knew he wouldn't turn her away. She knew that if she knocked on his door and went inside, she'd be taking a big step forward in her life, a transformation. She stopped for a moment, looked up at the stars. I'm here now, she thought, as I am. In a little while I'll be changed, though no one will know. It will be an invisible change. For a second she wavered, thought to turn back. But no, it was time. She stood on the cool granite step, tapped on the old wooden door, and waited. In a moment she heard footfalls coming across the room inside. An outside light went on above her, and then the door opened. Hey, she said. She couldn't see his face inside the dark room at first, but his hair curly around the back of his head looked almost as white as his T-shirt. He leaned into the edge of the door, sighed, and stood still. For a second she wondered what was wrong. Then he took her wrist, tugged her inside, and led her across the room. When he switched on the light, she saw how her feet had left footprints and pieces of wet grass across the pine floor. On a table there was a blue knapsack. She recognized it as the one they'd brought down with the dead man, and she wondered why Spencer had it here. Neither of them spoke, and then his mouth was on hers, kissing her, while his hands inched her T-shirt up and over her head and tugged her underwear down until she stepped out of them. He stood back, his hands on her shoulders, as if to hold her in place, and looked at her. She didn't like being naked alone, so she moved toward him and pulled at the waist of his undershorts. Later that night, she crawled out from under Spencer's arm and tiptoed across the room. She found her T-shirt and underwear, pulled them on. 
The door creaked, but he didn't wake, and she latched it softly behind her. Then she ran. When she got to the middle of the lawn between the lodge and low house, she stopped and looked up at the brilliant eye of the moon. The breeze lifted her hair and came up under her T-shirt, filling it for a moment. She was sixteen and no longer a virgin. A man wanted her, maybe even was in love with her, but she wasn't with him. She twirled around, letting her arms swing out. She twirled until the dark woods and the moon and low house and the lodge were going faster than she was. She was filled with a mysterious power, with magic. She turned until she couldn't stand up and collapsed in the wet grass, shut her eyes and spun in the darkness inside her head. Then she remembered the dead man they'd carried down the mountain, and she rolled onto her hands and knees and saw the black woods out there at the edges of the field. She shuddered, suddenly afraid. She imagined the ghost girl darting out of the woods, white hair flying, coming after her. She leapt up and ran toward Low House. She ran with a chill at her back, knowing she'd given all the demons in the world the right to chase her down the minute she dared to mock love. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.